when you create a solution for everyone, as it relates to human factors and stress, you create a solution for no one. And so at Arena, we are radically committed to the idea that if we equip the individual with a set of tools to understand himself or herself as it relates to stress and performance and recovery in day-to-day life, by gaining that self-awareness and knowledge over time, they become more confident and they feel more agency in the face of stress. And when you do that in the aggregate, you start to create teams and a culture that is, again, predicating on what you just said earlier, that the humble understanding of knowing oneself. And when you look at world-class cultures, whether that's Olympic athletes, Navy SEALs, creatives, the long arc of, of, the create, of the masters is that they have dedicated to that very basic principle, self-awareness over the compounding effects of being a little bit better every single day. Hi folks, I'm Dan Dworkis, and this is the Emergency Mind Podcast, a space where we bring together lessons from the emergency department and beyond about performance when it matters the most and applying knowledge under pressure. All right, it's hard to believe I'm saying this, but you are about to listen to the 50th episode of the Emergency Mind Podcast. Now, we have a show coming up soon where we sort of look back and think about some of the lessons that we've learned and some of the highlights from these first 50 episodes. So I'm just going to keep this short and say one thing, which is thank you. Thank you so much for building this community with me, for your suggestions, for listening to the podcast, for reading the book, for being out there every day, trying to make yourself better under pressure, and for helping me to grow this community into what it is just starting to become. I am honored and proud and just so grateful to be a part of this with you. There's also so much cool stuff coming down the pipeline that we're going to bring to the Emergency Mind community, and man, I'm, I'm just really excited for what comes next. So in this episode, speaking of things I'm excited about, we are joined by Brian Ferguson and Jurgen Heitman from the team at Arena Labs. Now, Brian is the founder and CEO, and Jurgen is the director of performance. Both of them are former Navy SEALs, and the work their team is doing at Arena Labs is just really incredible, and it's something I'm proud to be even tangentially involved in. This month, Arena Labs is launching the newest version of their platform, which is called Arena Strive, and it's designed to provide frontline clinicians with a truly unique set of tools and training that's built in the lessons from a variety of other high-risk, high-consequence professions. Things like elite athletes, special operators, the creative art performers. And Arena Strive also brings together really interesting insights from personal data on improving performance, quantifying stress, sleep, and recovery. I really highly recommend that you head over to their website to learn more. You can find them at arenalabs.global. That's A-R-E-N-A-L-A-B-S dot G-L-O-B-A-L. So if you want to dig deeper into what we're doing here on the Emergency Mind Project, come and join the community at emergencymind.com. You can check out our book, The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure at emergencymind.com book, or just reach out to me directly at dan at emergencymind.com. I'd love to hear from you. One logistics thing, the first person that you hear answering a question talking about the elevator pitch around Arena Labs is Brian, and then you're going to hear Jurgen come in a little bit later after that. All right. All that said, let's jump into this truly awesome episode. I hope you enjoy. Brian and Jurgen, thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. It's it's always wonderful to talk to you, and it's such an honor to do it in this format. Thank you. Thank you for joining. That's long and coming. Good to be here. Always a pleasure. Absolutely. I wonder if we can start off um, for folks that don't know uh, Arena Lab. First off, they should. If you're listening to this podcast, you should definitely know Arena Lab and what they're up to. Um, but can you all give us a, a, a bit of an elevator pitch about, about who you are and what Arena is about and, and what you do? Absolutely. Um, 
I think in a minute, we can maybe even come back to the origin story just because this is a, a mainly medicine audience. But, you know, at a, at a very simple level, our focus at Arena Labs is what we call high-performance healthcare, high-performance medicine. And it is bringing the tools and training and data of other high-consequence, high-performing cultures into modern healthcare. And so when you look at the elite military units, the world of, of the Olymp you know, Olympic athletes, um, people who perform at a high level in any athletic endeavor or the creative arts, each of those high consequence fields is given a set of tools and individual training to prepare those people to perform under pressure. Uh, and they're also often given data and monitors to understand themselves. And amazingly, medicine doesn't do that. And we can get into the conversation. It's certainly not out of an intentional neglect, but just the realities of how medicine has evolved. And so at Arena Labs, we're radically dedicated to bringing those tools and, and that training into frontline medicine. Um, and we do it, you know, our team is comprised of people who have backgrounds in those high performing disciplines. And we can get into a little bit of, of how we do that. But uh, really for us, you know, we, we talk about the sacred world of medicine and both myself and Jurgen were in, in the military private previously. And I think what's profound is that people go into healthcare because they want to do hard things, impact lives and, and impact the world. And it turns out it's very similar to the service mindset of, of the military. And so we, we always are humbled to be working with, you know, people like those who are listening today. Hmm. Awesome. And what got you guys interested in this particular thing about high performance medicine? Like, what was it that, what was it that, that made you sort of make that connection? Like, Hey, you know, these folks don't have, and aren't using the same tools that I'm seeing other high performance teams using. Cause first off, I totally agree with you. And I think that's one of the main thesis thesis is, I don't know what that word is of this podcast of like, you know, we really need to take the best of what all these high-performing teams have to offer and put it into the, the middle of emergency care, um, whether that's done in an emergency department or somewhere else. Uh, and, and there are these reusable lessons. And I'm, I'm hoping we're going to cover a lot of that ground today, but, but how did yeah. you guys first get interested in that? We stumbled into it in, in Jurgen, I'm, I'm fortunate has been, um, a willing wingman from day one in many ways, but, but I, um, you know, my, I guess for me, if I'm being, you know, really introspective, I've come to this conclusion later at the time. I don't think subconsciously I recognized it, but I grew up in healthcare. My mom was a nurse. Um, and at a point, there was a point in my life where I really wanted to go into healthcare. And what's interesting is I think about the vignette I often tell or share is that when I think about, you know, uh, we classically, I grew up in Ohio and, and, you know, most nights had dinner together as a family. And my mom was one of these, you know, classically got up really early, worked a long shift, came home and cooked dinner. And so we'd be at the dinner table and I have vivid memories. My mom was not a dramatic personality, but depending how the day in the OR was, there was that there was sort of a, a tenor at the table emotionally of if she had a great day, you could feel that excitement of someone who was service minded, getting to do the craft that she loved. So the inverse of that was true. If it was a tough day, lost a patient, you could feel that. And so it was a very much a part of, you know, is was, was one of the reasons I was drawn into the profession because I could tell my mom cared so much. Fast forward, I had the privilege of, of serving in the military and, and as part of my service, you know, a very basic level, what you're given is a set of tools to understand how to manage stress and pressure. And you're around people who are doing that regularly. Um, but I ended up as at, at the tail end of my time in the military collaborating with a whole bunch of organizations that we were looking at trying to understand performance at a higher level outside of the particular military unit I was in. And so I was collaborating with a bunch of unlikely partners from Nike to Red Bull, uh, Stanford's virtual reality laboratory. And it, I ended up at the Cleveland Clinic Heart and Vascular Institute, a phenomenal uh, pioneer and, and thinker there, Dr. Doug Johnson, who's a cardiothoracic surgeon. 
And I had gone in initially to talk with Doug. So, so, you know, CT surgery is very similar to the world of special operations. You have a team of eight to 12 people, time compressed environment. And so I was curious to, to see how they were thinking about performance and technology. And so Doug invited me into his operating room, watched him do a couple of cases. And I always say on one hand, I was blown away at the technological advancement of just modern medicine period, let alone at a place like the clinic that had been ranked at the time, number one in the world for 25 years. But I was equally astounded that there was no focus at the individual or the team level on performance, on, you know, the, the natural elements of being in a high consequence environment like heart surgery or the emergency department where you have, you know, that there's a development of time, people are put under pressure, things go wrong. Uh, and so for me, that led to a conversation uh, with Doug where I ended up going back after I left the military and embedding there with the 15 CT surgeons for a week and just watching procedures. And at the time, I brought a friend of mine who'd been an F-18 pilot, knowing that he was going to come at it from a different high-performance perspective of, of the military, understanding checklists and sort of the rote nature of some of these things. And at the end of that week of observing procedures, we built what we called a medical performance program. We said, look, if you're going to think about human factors and all these tools that people aren't given, uh, here's what that might be. And, and that really was the genesis of what we ended up calling high-performance medicine. And um, since then, we've had a number of evolutions we can come back to, but you know, I, I make that connection back to me because I think what was profound is I started, I now in retrospect realize someone like my mom, who is, you know, a nurse with, you know, not a lot of education in the space thrust into a really high pressure environment. If you don't give that person tools, of course, they're going to carry that emotion with them because they care. You know, Dan, I think the other thing too, you know, emphasizing what, what Brian just said is, you know, we had the unique you know, privilege in our community to work with some really amazing folks and live in a culture that was always trying to be better than the last day and always kind of pushing that envelope a little bit, look at the edges and, and really deeply concerned about the accountability and responsibility to yourself and the team and understand who you are in a different sense. And I think what we're seeing right now is this, this world of human factors and how it relates to performance and just over existence, you know, just overall existence and thriving in the community you work in. And as Brian says, you know, this is a sacred mission that you have both to yourself and your community. So how do you look at that from a lens of humility, respect to yourself and your team to learn more about yourself and your team? And I think that that application from, from such a, a diverse community of performers and people that work in these different arenas has just been so really um, eye-opening in, in the acceleration of learning and how you rethink your environment and your team. Hmm. You know, there's something so uh, sort of um, quietly radical in what you both are saying that I think needs to be called out. And that's the idea that getting better at what you're doing like this and, and managing yourself and your team and performing in these environments doesn't happen as an accident it's almost so obvious that it's sort of weird to even say it out loud, except that a lot of times that's one of the dominant myths in medicine, right? Is that if you just keep showing up and you keep seeing patients, eventually you get to become calmer and eventually you get to sort of do your job and like, you know, whatever, you'll figure it out as you get older. And, and what you both are saying in, in slightly different angles is that that's not actually how you've seen it work in a variety of other instances, but instead 
the deliberate training and, and having that culture that is, as you put it, always trying to be better than the last day. And that gives you tools explicitly, not just as an accidental byproduct of everything else you're doing, but says, Hey, like you got to work on this, just like you got to work on your sutures. You got to work on your understanding of like pharmacology. You have to work on yourself and how your mind and body functions under pressure. And I, I hope that as we keep doing this work both together and separately, that this will very shortly become uh, no longer a radical thing to say, and so completely obvious that it'll be ridiculous for us to have this part of the conversation. Yeah. But we're still sort of just getting into that. Um, and I guess I'd I guess I'd ask if we focus for a few minutes on the individual, and we're gonna, we're going to come back to the team in a minute. But if we focus on the individual, and, and you guys are describing getting these tools to help you understand how you function and being part of a culture that's that's always trying to be better. How was that culture? How was that culture made explicit? How did you how did you feel that? How did you see that? How did you live that culture? And my follow-up question is going to be how can we live that better in medicine? Mm -hmm. I think um a few different answers. I'm going to let Jurgen get into living the culture piece because he knows that, you know, he's he, he had such an extraordinary career. Um, one of the things I think almost stepping back for a minute on that question, Dan, that's important. And when we think about the way we focus at arena, you know, we, we, at one point we're embedding our teams in, in the operating room and, in, in, in EDs and, in ICU trauma. And so we were, we were indigenous to the culture of healthcare, which was invaluable for us because neither Jurgen nor myself are, came up in the world of medicine. So we always, you know, our, our first principle is always humility. Like we're, we're not saying we're going to tell you how to do your job but let's instead think about adjacent knowledge that we can borrow that's helpful for medicine. In the course of watching hundreds of procedures um, and meeting thousands of frontline staff, you do get a sense of modern culture and, and um, of, of the medical culture. And one of the things for me that became fascinating, and again, this is um, not out of neglect, but out of almost necessity, when you look at how hospitals and administrators approach the challenge of modern medicine, whether it is something like burnout um, or you know something related to patient quality and safety, the solutions are always rooted in the macro. They're either macroeconomics, so let's figure out how we improve margin in order, you know, because at the end of the day, most hospitals, all hospitals, have a bottom line. How you know whether the profit is a different discussion, um, or let's look at macro efficiencies. And so we wanna you know, improve throughput or turnover time or first case on time starts. Those things don't get me wrong are very important. And they are of course tethered to uh, national regulatory requirements. However, the problem with looking at everything through a macro lens is you miss the reality that the system is predicated on an individual caregiver who is highly nuanced. And so when we start talking about performance and wellness and resilience, most institutions, again, I, you know, I give an example, one of our partners that they, they have, you know, they give everybody a Fitbit and say, Hey, take the stairs instead of the elevator. Well-intended. Um, but when you create a solution for everyone, as it relates to human factors and stress, you create a solution for no one. And so at arena, we are radically committed to the idea that if we equip the individual with a set of tools to understand himself or herself as it relates to stress and performance and recovery in day-to-day -day life, by gaining that self-awareness and knowledge over time, they become more confident and they feel more agency in the face of stress. And when you do that in the aggregate, you start to create teams and a culture that is again, predicating on what you just said earlier, that the humble understanding of knowing oneself. 
And when you look at world-class cultures, whether that's Olympic athletes, Navy SEALs, creatives, the long arc of, of the create of the masters is that they have dedicated to that very basic principle, self-awareness over the compounding effects of being a little bit better every single day. And so in medicine, that's the reason we invert the traditional paradigm, which, you know, we say we go to hospital, we're not going to give you a macroeconomic solution. We're actually going to, it's going to be counterintuitive. We're going to focus obsessively on the individual physician or nurse and help them get equipped. And if we can do that at scale, I promise you, we're going to change our culture. And, and how do you see that? How is that lived? Right? Like if I'm, if I'm a doctor and I, I want to be self-aware and change myself slightly every day and build up that integral over time, how do I, how do I start doing that? I think, um, and I'll start here and I'll turn it back to Brian. I, I think that starts with a mindset. Mm-hmm. And again, as we all know, you know, you have to take out as many assumptions as possible and, and people don't just rise to the occasion, but they always fall back to your training. So if that's the case, how are you, how are, are you thinking about training human factors and all the things that Brian just mentioned deliberately, not just making the assumption that, hey, you're in this position of leadership or you have these functional capabilities, you naturally have all these other things. And then people will, you know, rationally think, oh, you know, they're not doing that. It's ridiculous. They should be doing that. But where are you taking the very deliberate step, you know, from leadership on down that applies this training principle? And this gets back into your culture piece. So if you think about culture, you know, that culture is really that clarity of that sense of purpose of that organization. And it's not what you believe per se, but it's always about how you behave. And every individual in the organization makes up that collective how you behave. So you think about those behaviors driving towards the mission or purpose of the organization and why you're there. And that whole nuance starts going back down to, as Brian said, the individual. So how are you rethinking that whole piece and deliberately defining those critical definitions of behavior and purpose? How how are you mapping those into a unique framework that really articulates your culture? And we know that as your ethos. Does the organization have that ethos? And that that ethos lives by the actions of the individuals. And again, how do you, you know, in this new age here, like you said before, uh, how do you quantify those behaviors and actions? You know, again, same with our culture. For years, it was just go harder, longer, faster. You just push through, you know, masters of compartmentalization. I have have no limitations. Nope, I got no, you know, concerns. I'm all good to go. When in reality, we haven't really applied the science to look into ourselves. So it's always been a very subjective nature, which is now why we're applying the exponential increase in awareness through wearables, technology, and really getting a more objective look at how you are. Again, back to that accountability and responsibility yourself and your team. And then I think, you know, the, the behaviors and action is really, again, the foundation of the culture you're trying to leave. And, and what we're trying to instill here you know, collectively, as we learn from all these unique people, is is high performers are absolutely expert learners. They have a learning velocity that is exceptional, and and that and that's an accountability to themselves, but most importantly to the people around them in whatever position they're at. It doesn't matter what title it is, and that's where you see a culture really accelerate. And I think those are some you know intrinsic in, excuse me intrinsic motivations 
that as you start doing those reps and you start training that, and that was the amazing thing about some of our communities and learning from some of these amazing other athletes and performers of just the repetitions of that, it turns into muscle memory. And that's the expectation of the norm. And that's the benchmark you keep pushing. And it's unique because it comes back to, you know, what you're always saying of, of how do we think about preparing, performing, recovering, and evolving, which is really about learning that learning velocity and that reflection phase, which I think is one of the most important things in that whole evolution. But as Brian can go into more is from our observations is probably one of the least, least effective tools that I've seen in medicine that's emphasized. When I think about your question is, okay, how do we, how do we migrate um, into this notion of, of understanding high performance and practicing it? And I think it starts unequivocally with the values. And so what are the things we value? What do I personally value? What does your organization value? It's one of the reasons we often talk. So we use the language of the sacred world of medicine. And the reason is because I don't say that lightly. People come into medicine. Medicine is a very, I think when you look at, um, you know, just globally, I, I, I recently was pulling up some data on this, but the World Economic Forum does data on the most respected professions, you know, and, and medicine is typically at the top. And it's ultimately because from a societal perspective, people are committing, it's a selfless act to commit to taking care of other people. And so, so the act of deciding to go into healthcare is actually a very consequential decision. And people have this inspired soul to go do that. Now, over time, that can be diminished when you're in an organization that maybe suppresses it. But if we think about, you know, you're going to use the term ethos, ethos is Greek for character. And so the values of an individual in the collective start to become the values of the organization. And so the way the organization really says, here's what's important. That's where we start. It starts with values. And then it's say, okay, what are the behaviors around those values that we're going to, you know, that, that we're going to enforce? And so again, medicine is brilliant. It's saying, here's our values. And technically we're going to equip you to be your best self so that you can solve a problem technically in order to take care of people who are sick or dying. Um, it does not do that as much historically when we talk about human factors and preparing people mentally and emotionally for the, the challenges of that craft. And so the last piece of that that we found is data. And the data is so important because if I can give, you know, if I give someone data that shows them what stress and fear look like and how that is actually correlated to recovery and performance, it, it, it's profound. And when people value learning and they value human factors and being their best, and you give them some behaviors via tools that allow them to change data, that's, that is how we actually shift culture over time. And as Jurgen's saying, again, this is not something we're making up at Arena Labs. We're very much borrowing from what we've seen happen in the world of special operations. If you rewind the clock 15 years, Jurgen was one of the pioneering leaders who was saying, look, we have two wars going on right now, and this is physically breaking and mentally breaking people because we're, we're, we're putting in an inordinate amount of stress on a small group of operators to conduct wars overseas. And so it required this recalibration around human factors and rest and smarter training and 15 years later, you see those dividends pay off. Similarly, if you look at athletic teams that we all talk about, whether you're an American football fan and Tom Brady and the New England Patriots, or you're looking at European soccer slash football, this is heavily driven by a deep investment in the individual, changes in behaviors driven by data. Um, and so the question you said earlier is like, hopefully at some point in the near future, this doesn't feel crazy to talk about. I think medicine is getting there. Um, but in fairness to medicine, 
the this I always say the technical skill is table stakes. No, I don't care what craft you're in. If you're in the martial arts, if you're in the military, the military is an example. Learn to communicate and fire a weapon, and you know, medic basic you know tactical medicine. That's table stakes. Your ability to be a performer is how well you perform a technical skill under pressure in a team environment in life, life often life and death high consequence stakes. Medicine, the technical table stakes are so much higher. It's understandable that this has been neglected because training someone to be an emergency room physician or an ICU nurse, there's a lot to learn technically. Um, and I think, you know, we are realizing now that in the 21st century, that is coming at the expense of the ability for people to manage emotionally and mentally the realities of what that means over time if, if you don't have the right tools. Guys, thank you. I, I thank you for saying this. Thank you for bringing this up to all of us. And, and thank you for pushing us. I, I, I think that I'm going to, um, I feel pretty comfortable saying this because of everything that I spend my time doing, but we spend so much time in medicine pretending that we're not human. You know, that we're just like automatons able to like deliver drugs and do procedures and do everything. And the number of conversations we've had both live on the podcast and then also like in the, you know, in the hallways between cases uh, at all of the places that I've worked, keep coming back to this theme about saying, hey, I, I don't, I'm, I'm human and I keep losing that piece of me while I'm doing it. And I think that it's part because we ignore that and we don't think about some of these things like you all are saying, either in the realm of, well, what does it take to actually support myself as a human system, right? If you go back to like uh, what Eric Antonsen, who's an, an ER doctor and also working with NASA talks about, about the human system and space flight. Right, the human system is equally as important to the propulsion system and the navigation system and everything else. And if you don't, if you just expect the human system to be endlessly elastic and absorb stress, that's going to break. That that doesn't work. And I think we are, um, you know, myself and the teammates that I am fortunate enough to work with, have inherited a system of medical training that ignores the human system to our own peril a lot of the time. And I think that's just starting to bend in part because of. Uh, the hard work of folks like yourself who are educating us on the, Hey, this doesn't have to be this way. Like you guys don't have to be doing this. There's a lot of other smarter things we can be doing to support the human system and to further your mission and to give you the tools it takes to, to live up to that sort of sacred calling that we're, that we're doing. Um, implicit in that and, and linked into that is you're going to, what you were saying about this idea of each of us really owning the um, like to be a dedicated and constant student of ourselves and of our nature and how we fit into our, into our universe. Uh, and those are really almost two sides of the same coin, right? The human system and the human learner and the, or the learning system or whatever you want to mash that up to call it. I don't know. I'll find a better word for that later. But, but I think that those two pieces supporting the human system and, and having that beginner's mindset, that student mindset, that humble, I'm going to keep growing and learning no matter where I am in the process. And those are some amazing pillars that I'd, I'd love to see us adopt more uh, in and out of the emergency department. Yeah, it, it's interesting, you know, as I reflect back, you know, as you mature through your career, whatever it is, um, in, in these areas of high performance or complex environments, or, you know, very dynamic, chaotic environments, you realize, you know, that transition from being a technician or, you know, that very specific operator to be able to have that, as you mentioned, beginner's mindset, or as we call in our community too, an important piece is that selection mindset, how you show up every day, even at the most uh, demanding and unique organizations, 
you can be asked to leave at any time, whether it's you've been there 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, whatever the case may be. And as you show up with this selection mindset, it, you're stepping into the arena with this humility and respect of, hey, I need to perform. I need to be aware of my environment. I need to be aware of people around me. And I have to be accountable every day that I'm constantly learning how to be a good leader, how to be a good follower, you know, understand the dynamics that are around me. It's not the technical tools in these you know, long duration, complex environments that excels. It's all those other tools, you know, that, that you learn in observation and self-awareness and team awareness and all those nuances. And I think, you know, that high performing mindset principle is, is just that you show up with the mindset of you're in a selection phase. It doesn't matter if you've done it for 30 years because the complacency literally kills. It kills in our environment when you think the enemy is, you know, wearing, um, you know, a piece of rubber for shoes and doesn't know which end of the rifle is, is the pointy end per se, you know, that kind of complacency kills. And the other piece is the same thing here. You always have to arrive at a state where you're hungry and willing and wanting to learn. You can, you should never be arriving that, Hey, I'm good to go. I'm, I'm an expert here and things like that. And I know most people understand that, but really thinking about, you know, how you show up every day and that mindset that steps into that, that performance uh, space, whatever that is, is the critical piece. And then everything else falls from exactly what you're talking about there. All the tools you use, all the training, you know, that, that exploration of where to learn, not just within your own organization, but other fields. And I think that's the most important. I personally um love to look at the mountaineering environment for a learning aspect, both in leadership, preparation, execution, how you think about risk, you know, mitigation, all those things. Um, and, and obviously we all learn, you know, from the fields we work in and for us, military history, military science and all that piece, but it was those other fields. And especially that, that I made that connection in a different way and allowed me to be much more creative and innovative because I wasn't locked into a certain realm. And I think that's one of the unique pieces of, of building the community that we're building and allowing other voices. We're just curating you know, the information, but allowing those voices to really connect to different people in different ways. And it does, it sparks, it, it wakes you up and you, you get curious and you really start developing now an explorer's mindset of how to move forward. You know, I'm struck by this memory of one of the first times I was in an operating room as a medical student. And I, uh, one of the first things you do when you're, when you're in there learning is it's your responsibility to cut the ends off of a suture. So the surgeon will tie the knot and then hold the ends of the string up and then say, okay, scissors to Dworkis, or if they know your name, which they usually don't, scissors to medical student, medical student, cut the knot. And, there's a, and then no matter what happens, they yell at you no matter how you cut the knot. And there's a joke about it, which is that there's only two ways that a medical student can cut a knot, which is too long or too short. And, and I think that like, that's part of the culture that we've inherited, which is different than what you're saying, because what you're saying is this idea that like, you need to have, you know, I think all three of us do martial arts of one field or another. So you have to have that white belt mindset where you're constantly wanting to learn and show up. And I don't think that we model that very well right now. Well, certainly we have a long way to go for it because we keep having this culture that's like, oh, medical students cut it too long or too short, which is the opposite of having a white belt mindset, right? Having a white belt mindset is the leaders showing up, is the people like media attending showing up and saying, hey, this is what I'm working on today. 
I'm still a student. Yes, I'm farther along in my process than you are. And yes, I'm going to teach you, but I am a student first and foremost of human performance. I'm a student of emergency medicine, and I'm going to keep being a student of emergency medicine until I'm no longer able to do it for whatever reason. And that is a big difference. That call to action to people listening to this is a very big difference to model that type of behavior, not the too long or too short sort of behavior. Um, and I, I hope it, that's it, not it, still yeah, going on. Not, not to, but, yeah, not to interrupt, but I, yeah. I do. The only thing I want to put a pin in here, because I, I think you know, Jurgen and I both, and we haven't suggested otherwise here, but it's always important for us to emphasize modern medicine and emergency room. Any, it's hard and it's demanding, and it's not for everyone. And attrition is good. Like, not everyone who shows up and raises their hand to go into medicine probably should. Um, and so having a process that makes people ask hard questions of themselves and see what they're made of and have to go, you know, really test whether or not this is something I want to commit to is important. And we are not suggesting that people should be soft or that, that, you know, mm, that, that these absolutely. That, um, and what's interesting though, as Jurgen was alluding, I often say that I think one of the things the special operations community does unequivocally better than anyone else is this idea of selection and assessment over time. And when you really break down those processes, what's interesting is there's a front end uh, part of that training that is meant to have heavy attrition. And it is mm -hmm. meant to see how committed to this are you, back to your values, is this what you want? Are you able to perform? And then once, you're, once you pass that sort of arbitrary line, it's now about investing in you and developing you. And I do think that often in medicine, in many fields, frankly, that line is not as clear. And so mm -hmm. people find themselves at stages where you know, we're often surprised when someone is very far into a heavy investment of years of training someone and they're not cutting it. And they're sort of like, Hey, we're gonna let this person go. Well, you know, that, that's where is it, is it smarter to figure out, okay, what tools can I give this person? How do I mentor or lead this person through this moment so they can be better provided on the front end, I've tested them against character and habit and all the things that I know they're going to need to survive. So yeah. yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good point in qualification. And I, I'm not suggesting that we don't put friction in front of people because you have to have friction to do this job or any of the jobs that we're discussing in this high performance field. You have to, you have to be able to push back and hold your own despite difficult, hard, and even like terrible circumstances and antagonistic environments and, you know, all of the stuff that you're going to have to go through. And, and I think that there's a difference in there between uh, that, which is necessary and crucial and a um, sort of like, I hold all the knowledge and I'm right and you're wrong kind of mindset and yep. sort of what, what our you know, mutual um, friend Preston Klein would describe as the just suck less mindset, yep. right? Like there has to be a better way to train people than just telling them to suck less. Yeah. Uh, and uh, if, you've, if you're listening to this, you haven't heard um, the episode with, with Dr. Preston Klein and his discussion of that story. It's like definitely worth a sidebar to go listen to that. It's a, it's a great one. Dr. Brad um, Taylor, who's, um, he's now the, the chief of cardiothoracic surgery in Maryland, but he talks, he sees himself now as a head coach. And I love that mm -hmm. idea. He calls himself a head coach and bringing that, how do you bring that mindset and everything I do of training the people around me and equipping them to go on the field and do what they need to do. And, um, but, but those small nuances are in, in, in the leadership side of medicine again is, um, it's one that for a whole, I think, historical reasons is not always looked at. And it's when we think about our own evolution of pushing someone through our platform, there's individual skills. Again, there's team skills, but the apotheosis here is the leader. And I think what's surprising about medicine is, again, there's this radical focus on technical proficiency and someone proves themselves as a very worthy clinician. And now they're pulled off the bench and they're asked to go lead their teammates. 
And there's nothing harder than leading your teammates in high stakes, high consequence environments. And when you're not given a new rubric to think about that leadership, it, 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 bad habits are created. And so that's why we, we put a deep emphasis on how do we equip people to think about leading and managing in modern healthcare because it's, it's really challenging. And when you all were learning this, when you all were going through this process of learning how to lead a team and also how to, at the same time, lead yourself and sort of be this constant evolution version of yourself, um, what are things that you do differently now than you did at the beginning? Like if you put yourself up against young Brian or young Jurgen, and, you know, subtracted some of our all mutual gray hairs that we have going on, like, like, what is it that's different? It's a different respect to yourself. You know, when you're young, you're just charging hard and you're just going at hundred miles an hour. And I think as, as you mature and you match and you think about the stages of development and your maturation through your processes, I'll come back to this always, but the one area where you really start putting, you know, much more weight in is your reflection in your self-awareness. And, and what are those tools? And we'll talk about it later of, of that feedback loop from the people around you how you take time out from yourself to say, man, I, I screwed that up. God damn it. I'm not going to do that again. But where do you take that extra time to really document however you want to catalog that and whatever's best for you, what those were and how do you come back and have that reflection prior to the next space? And how do you develop an architecture to do that and have that mental you know, process of doing that? You know, And again, the things you control is your preparation, your attitude and your effort. Those are the things you control when you step into a space. So then how do you take a discipline process and then you can go one step more. How do you take that self-discipline process, i.e. yourself to, to step into that and really reflect on that? And I think that was one of the things that, that on myself, you know, as I was evolving was just taking a little bit more respect to take the time to really reflect and really understand that and make sure that, you know, I wasn't being too hard on myself when I failed, but actually taking those failures as a really sacred space to learn. And then more importantly, as you mature, how do you share those learnings with others? And how do you articulate it and put in context where they're at in their stages in development? And, you know, as a leader and a follower, because you're switching no matter what at the moment in time, how are you articulating and communicating those things? And there's so many amazing things that you do that, not just from reading, but from observation. But I think it's that, that perspective, at least, you know, in our communities and most arenas of performance, of it's really not failure if you're learning, you know? Mm -hmm. If you fail and just say, ah, I screwed up, that's one thing. But if, you're, if, you make, if, you, if you make it look like, you know, success or learning versus winning or failing, it's a huge different dynamic in the mindset and how you really develop out. Because again, we'll come back to this principle about learning, learning about yourself, learning about your team, your environment, you know, and that's one of the real, you know, uh, key lessons and attributes and characteristics that you need to step into in a high performing, especially in long duration complexity and dynamic environments um, to really accelerate um, what you need to do, both for your mission and your team. We have a uh, we have a culture at the end of a uh, cardiac arrest or a respiratory arrest. If if the patient dies, if we're not able to start the heart again, um, to end that by saying, "Thank you, sir or ma'am, for teaching me. I'm sorry. All I could do today for you is to learn." 
And because that sense of never wasting that suffering and not seeing it as a failure, but instead saying, okay, well, what can we learn from this to get better for the next person that comes in? And I think that's a really important thing that you just said about that, that like, that is the mark of a learning machine and a learning person is to not accept that as a done failure. And instead to say, okay, well, what do we do with this? How do we move forward? How do we be better tomorrow? And to keep that, keep that turning, even as you take the time and space to honor the humanity of the people that, you know, you cross paths with in, in either your field or my field, either way. Um, it, hey Dan, real quick, is that yeah. protocol something you employ? When you say we have a process, is that mm -hmm. we USC? Is that your ED? Is that nationally? I've, I've actually never heard of that. It's fascinating. Yeah. So, so there's a big push to take a moment of silence at the end as, mm -hmm. as sort of a, a space. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not super well structured. I learned that from, um, uh, Ash, from Dr. Ashley, now Ashley Wiseman, uh, who was ahead of me in residency. Uh, and I think she made it up to be honest, that phrasing mm. of it, but yeah, it's, yeah. it, man, I never forgot the first time I heard that. And I have used it every time since. And I teach it to anybody that I come in contact with, mm -hmm. because to me that epitomizes this underlying virtue of, of never wasting suffering. And yeah. That that's sometimes all you can do is too. hit that. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Amazing. That ritual. Yeah, exactly. That mm -hmm. aspect of closing in a way that, that has both the deep respect and also the reality that, you know, there's another person out there that also needs you and you need to be better yeah. for that person. Yeah. Hmm. Well, yeah. Um, Jurgen, you mentioned reflecting and, and your better ability to reflect as you as you go on and get better at your craft. And I wonder if we can disentangle two things. Is that because you understand your craft better and are therefore better able to reflect? Or is it because you've actually gotten better at the skill of reflecting independent of your actual knowledge base? Because either of those possibilities are there and you would train them slightly differently. I think it's, uh, you know, in the maturation, you're getting reps through all your experiences. Um, so it's a better understanding of how to reflect and the architecture and tools you've used that both in communication, you know, and your in internal cataloging. But I would also turn the other thing. It's actually the humility of what I don't know, you know, as you go through this process. So as you all, as we all say, you know, the more you learn, the more you realize what you really don't know. You know, so as you continue to become a better learner and your, and your mindset is always about learning more, where are you looking outside at different areas, you know, to really explore, to realize, man, I really don't know a lot about this topic. How should I seek out others that, that do know more or understand it from a different angle? Again, like using mountaineering or, you know, creative arts. It, right now for me, you know, in, in some of the work that we're doing, as I watch these creative artists that are professionals for 20, 30 years in acting and Cirque du Soleil and just movement artists and things like that, it's just so amazing to see how they develop their learning patterns and, and what, what we really don't know and how it could be applied to, you know, different arenas that we're working in, especially in the medical arena. And it, it's a fascinating way to, again, back to Brian's point, that sense of humility and respect of what's really out there to learn and how it's never ending. You've never arrived to that spot where you're an expert, you know, and especially in today's pace of exponential learning, 
and, and how we can do that. You know, it's just, it's a different sense of, I think, uh, maturing to understand what you really don't know as you get a chance to explore out, outside of our field. And you really see that when you transition out of your space sometimes and into a different uh, community. So let's shift gears just slightly. So it, we've been talking a lot about what individuals who are leaders of teams can do. You know, how do I set the tone for my team about building a culture that that favors self-investigation and also consistent learning? What about folks that are listening to this that aren't the leaders of their team? They're the junior practitioner, they are a medical student, um, they're the you know second in command paramedic on the rig. How do people take these same principles that we're talking about and and drive that change from below? I'll just make one statement up front. Um, as I've learned over the years, you never know when you're going to be the leader of the team. And I think that's such a critical principle. And, you know, and that's definitely emphasized in very chaotic um, dynamic environments, because as we've learned as, as leaders is the person closest to the problem set really becomes the leader. They, they see it with the greatest clarity. They understand the nuance of what, what may have just occurred and what's maybe occurring next. They have it from a different lens. Um, it's not because you know, you're you in our world, the ground force commander or whatever the case may be. It could be that person that's sitting over by that rock that's, that's looking out and seeing what's happening. Or it could be the person that's behind uh, as, as Brian and I saw in, in, in a unique um, operation um, at one of the hospitals we were working at, it was the it was the civilian technician that actually saw where the the direction of things were beginning to go to failure before anyone else, and they became the leader in the room, and 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 that individual was able to reset the room to actually be effective in where the team was absolutely just imploding. Mm-hmm. So, I would always emphasize you should always be prepared to be the leader which is, again, putting yourself in that constant kind of mindset. Um, and it's just a natural evolution. So um, the first thing is getting away from titles and positions and always being able to sense that kind of aspect over. Yeah, I do think um, back to the, the sort of culture idea, Dan, I, one of the things, um, not to over leverage the, the anecdote here, but, but one of the things back to the, the ethos idea and what the Navy SEAL ethos actually says is we expect to lead and to be led. Um, and there's a mantra in that, that that is just part of the culture where you, it's at Jurgen's point, at any point you may be leading. Um, but outside of that, I think for someone who is new to medicine, who is not leading, uh, it's actually the single best time in your career to get really good at everything we've talked about, because it only gets harder when you have to lead other people. And it's actually harder than to think about yourself. Um, and so this notion of mastering yourself, if you want to be the world's best, I don't care what that is, emergency physician, if that's, you know, um, on the back of a rig, as you're suggesting in an ambulance, that comes with self-awareness and the pursuit of self-mastery through a better understanding of oneself. And in our case, what we're talking about is physiologically, emotionally. The technical skills are going to continue to be something you're tested against. But the more you understand your own emotional cycle and clarity of thought and focus and sleep and all these things that you're able to control, that's powerful. And that's how you get better. Um, and so I think, you know, it's, it's you know, this sort of the seize the moment. I mean, now's the time to really learn and be really deliberate with who you surround yourself with when you have a choice. 
you know, find mentors. We have a, uh, on our platform, uh, one of our modules is on mentors. And, and, you know, if you're early in your career right now, uh, find the person who inspires you, who you want to be like, and I mean, as almost deliberately ask them to be your mentor. Um, but that, you know, that, that starting with self-awareness is it's profound. Um, and I, I think that is, you know, at, at one, one sort of point, I think that is a corollary here. That's important context for what we talk about is that, you know, earlier on, you were mentioning the human system and NASA and, and how healthcare overlooks that, especially at the expense of the individual provider. I think what I've learned is actually healthcare obsessively focuses on it. They just do it in the wrong way. Here's what I mean by that. I, 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 I'm intentionally being provocative when I say the most insidious narrative I've seen in modern medicine is patient safety. And what I mean by that is not that patient safety isn't paramount and taking care of the patient in quality and outcomes isn't the goal, but the way it's propagated is to suggest it comes at the expense of the individual caregiver or provider's health, well-being, and understanding of him or herself. And so what we often talk about is say the least important part of patient safety is the patient. Because if you yourself have truly understood how to master your own emotions and physiology and stress, and you can do your job at your best in the most austere demanding of consequences and circumstances, that is when we get world-class patient safety and outcomes. And so that, again, whether you're a leader or not, how do I take care of myself so that I can deliver better safety, patient safety and outcomes? Yeah, that, that really gets back to me for this idea of like, what, you know, what is the vision of a, of a bright future, right? What would I, if I, you know, could, you know, infinity gems, gem style, snap my fingers and like create a world that had everything in it that I would want like that. Like, I think about that idea of, you know, healthy, intelligent humans who are functioning at the top of their ability in these high pressure environments supported, like functioning on healthy, well put together teams supported by healthy, well put together structures and systems. Because I think what you're saying makes sense. Like each of us owns our own piece of it, right? Like I own, I own what I show, you know, it, the, the preparation attitude and effort. I own what I show up to my shift with like that. I own what I did the night before in my preparation phase that allows me to show up and do the work on my day on, right? I also though, am part of a bigger team and a bigger system. And somewhere in there, there's things that I don't own that I can't control all of, and I can just nudge. And there's this, there's this duality to it in terms of, or this dichotomy to it in terms of what I own all of and what I can just sort of influence in there. And I like what you're saying, because it, it puts in some part, it, it allows me to focus on myself to say, okay, well, I can't do everything, but I can certainly do everything I can to master myself as an individual and yeah. then keep nudging the systems and stuff around me, which and, again, and, and I guess, you, I'm glad, oh, yeah, you, I'm glad you, you emphasize this point because you did a better job hitting that than, than I did. And I should have, which is to say, like back to the point that we are in no way suggesting we are going to make medicine easier or your job easier. I don't care where you work. The, the oh, stress, on, <laughs> <laughs> the stressors in modern medicine, when you think about advancements in technology and patient load and changes in economics are only going to increase. So the exogenous variables in your environment are going to stay the same. The difference is the more you learn energy management and self-awareness and these principles, at the individual level, you will feel an increased sense of agency and feeling an increased sense of agency to, again, there's going to be times when you can't get eight hours of sleep, but how do you take advantage of that and know what you can do to optimize your own energy. 
or to de-stress after a really insane week. I mean, those are the things that start to make a difference so that people don't feel completely helpless and controlled by a system and a machine that is, that is beyond them. That, that, that for us is the big difference. Yeah. When I, when I keep going back to this framework of, you know, prepare, perform, recover, and evolve, right. I think so much of my early training was on perform and like maybe a little bit on prepare, you know, like you learn a little bit and then like every now and then somebody would talk about recover, but I think that it really takes all of these components and it takes being skilled at all of these components and thinking about all these components to really sort of act up to your, your, I guess your optimal performance. Um, and it, it requires a culture that invests in and believes in those things and invests in and believes in people getting better at those things. So I, what do you guys see as that part of it? I mean, do you see that as occurring naturally as a consequence of individuals that are more invested in this work? Or do you see that there needs to be sort of this, this change at, at multiple, you know, multiple sort of fractal levels of the pattern? I think one part of it is, you know, again, as we started right up front, the world of human factors and how we look at flourishing, longevity, performance, and define these different pillars is changing. The conversation is changing a bit. And I think uh, just the, you know, COVID environment of how humanity has, is relooking, you know, stress, work, priorities, nature, regeneration, you know, it, it it's, it's becoming so so much clearer where the advances need to be and how we actually look at that whole piece. So, you know, we, we chat about this all the time. You think about, you know, all these world high performers, whether it's fighter pilots or, or musicians or, or circ actors and, and performers, they need to perform at the highest level every single day, multiple times a day for years, you know, and, and we could just take, you know, the current environment of, of, you know, the combat action in these different, you know, global environments for years and years is long duration complexity and, and high performance piece. Or you could just take an NFL team and look at a performer there. At high performance, you know, optimize at every single day. It doesn't lead to a long, healthy life, as we all know. You start breaking down in all those places that Brian mentioned. But in these environments, you know, again, we're just masters of compartmentalization and not showing any weakness or um, degradation. But I think now that the, the dialogue is changing and the importance through technology, wearables, what we're sensing, what we're learning, the, the, the increase in science is the fact that we really need to start relooking at how we define performance, longevity, how you define for flourishing in your environment and still be able to perform in this long duration of accelerated complexity. And like Brian mentioned, you, know, you start adding machines into the human machine dynamic, the cognition load is through the roof and only gonna get more. There's a different, there's a different discussion going on there. So I think that's, that's also the nuance of learning more about yourself through these tools and taking more time to look at regeneration you know, and as we call, you know, in the performance world, prehab, so to speak, of really taking time for yourself to be that much more effective. And then your actions are actually the catalyst of the team around you in the organization back to that whole piece. Um, and I think that's one of the, the amazing things that, you know, Arena has really been focusing on is how do we apply all those principles and really bring that to a whole different light to really emphasize that to folks that feel that and understand that, but it's maybe not talked about, so to speak. 
implicit in that is, is not just redefining what it means to, you know, longevity and redefining your relationship with stress, but it's really in, in our field in emergency medicine, it's redefining what it means to be a successful emergency physician to really practice emergency medicine successfully. Because if you take the longer view, you take the integral of your life and your career and the, the number of times that you're gonna be able to step up and hold the line as, as the person that day, like you have to pay attention to these other things, which is a really fundamental shift from the attitude I came out of training with, which was just, you throw yourself in and you keep throwing yourself in. And there needs to be this other component to it. Um, I don't know what the answer to that is, other than what we're describing in terms of learning and measuring more and changing myself, but I'm really happy we're having this conversation on a larger scale level to be able to push that, that idea out to different teams. And I think, Dan, one quick thought, like, mm -hmm. this is not unique to medicine. And what we're talking about is a complex industrial age system. And so, and what I mean by that is that when you look at the institutions that govern most of society and that we rely on, the core institutions, we talk about the defense, you know, the defense and military, education, healthcare, civil, civil government. Most of all of those were, were constructed in some way in the 18th and 19th century, and they're ill-equipped, or in the 20th century, and they're ill-equipped for today's world. What gets fascinating to me is that there is this tension because they feel so complex and hard to change. And the reality is in some ways they are. But one of our beliefs at Arena, and we, we haven't got into you know, the actual platform we built Strive, but the tr Strive is predicated on us being a trusted teammate. And the reason that's important is to your question, okay, how do we change this? It has to be a duality. If you just focus on leadership, you miss the most important component, which is your frontline teams. If you focus on frontline teams, you miss the most important component, which is giving leaders more strategic information so that they can be smarter in how they're hiring and training. Mm -hmm. And there's a, that tension that exists between the frontline practitioner and the headquarters element is endemic across all those institutions. So a soldier in the military is going to have a bit of reticence about a headquarters element, like a frontline teacher and a, a, and a you know, superintendent. And so the reason that exists is, again, those industrial organizations were set up in a hierarchical environment. And so there's a bit of a, you know, when you're at the bottom of the pyramid, you sort of don't trust the top. What we've tried to do to circumnavigate that is to create a third party system. We call ourselves a trusted teammate. And the reason that's important is the first thing we do is we, we're going to train and give access to these tools in this world class training to frontline clinicians so that they can, they can understand how Navy SEALs or Cirque du Soleil acrobats or someone, an Olympic athlete trains the mind and the body more smartly for stress and pressure. And they're gonna have a wearable device and that device is gonna be collecting data. What is paramount is that that data is anonymized and blinded beyond them. And so they, when they, they trust us enough to say, hey, this team knows what they're doing. I'm gonna share my data with them. That creates a relationship where they're learning and they're growing and getting better. And they're starting to see behavior change actually manifest in better outcomes or better clinical focus. If we do that systemically, and then we remain a trusted partner where we say to, to a leadership, hey, we now have an entire team in your hospital willing to give us their data and we're seeing behavior change. And here's the trends we're seeing and the gaps in how you're currently staffing or thinking about cases we now, that trust goes both ways. And that leadership is going to trust to say, hey, you've given us data on our frontline teams that we've never had, and it's actually making us smarter. So that duality is really critical. And the only way it happens is through a trusted third party. And that's the, that, that's the, the foundational philosophy of Arena Strive and the platform we've built. Yeah. And maybe, maybe for folks that don't know that 
like, and I'll go on the record saying, I completely believe in what you guys are doing. I think it's going to make an enormous difference. So, but what is, what is arena strive? How does it work? And, and what's your vision for that? So arena strive is a platform that is, it's a digital platform accessible on a smartphone for, excuse me, a smartphone or a desktop for any clinician in the country. Now, the, what we have built is first and foremost, a content experience. So think about Netflix meets masterclass where you have access to 150 videos that are laid out across an individual set of skills, a team set of skills and leadership skills. And as you move along a journey, each of these videos is roughly 90 seconds to three minutes long. And they're rooted in science and proven protocols from other verticals like sport and the military and the creative arts that can be used to help you better understand yourself and, and frankly, move forward in understanding energy management and rituals. We deliberately film these videos to be, to be dynamic and interactive. So it doesn't feel like you're watching dry, boring, stale content that someone in your hospital has forced you to watch. It's something that we hope you would want to watch on your, your own time. As an example, maybe it's a, a blue angel fighter pilot teaching about visualization um, or someone who's been an Olympic athlete teaching about how she calms herself before a big race very accessible tools you can use right now. While you're on our platform, you have a wearable sensor and that wearable sensor that is monitoring your sleep, your levels of stress and your, your day-to-day -day recovery. So the concepts that you're learning on our platform from these world-class coaches and instructors, you're able to reinforce and see through the context of your own data. So you're on this content platform, again, access on your phone. Think of just going on Netflix. You can choose a video start to watch it. And now I'm going to implement something like a breathing protocol and try it out. And I'm going to see how that affects my data. We keep you on the platform for roughly six months. And then what you start to see is number one, as you move through the content experience, what things work for me and what do I really like, be it for myself or for my team. And now as I'm implementing these and I'm starting to develop some rituals and some habits, six months into it, I'm actually seeing significant change across my own behaviors, how I feel, and my objective data that my sensor is showing me. Um, we've built in a coaching experience. So we have a director of coaching who's gonna, who helps cohorts and teams move through, understand their data and understand what practices and protocols are really helping. Um, and then the last part of this, as you can imagine, that we think is really powerful is when we start to do this in institutions at a large enough numbers, we then turn around and give that data in an anonymized and aggregated way to hospital leaders. So for the first time in history, they actually have a proactive understanding of their human system. They're not relying on poor metrics of burnout to suggest where they are in a moment of time. They can instead get ahead of that and see things before they get really bad. I love it. And the part of this that I've had a chance to play with, I think there's some really interesting, really deep stuff that goes on in there in terms of what I can arm, what knowledge I can arm myself with and what knowledge I can arm my team with uh, and to enable us to sort of put these practices into, into place and actually see the results of them, um, which really is a piece that's, that's missing that we don't have anything that does right now. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm very excited to have this, have this up and running for all of us. Like I mentioned before, this, this time and space is uniquely provided an opportunity of, of how to think upstream about this and how to get ahead of the environment that we're in. Because, you know, whether it's you take COVID and the dynamic uh, environment of that, you know, um, the, the, the nuanced people feels of this, of this sine wave that they're going through and never knowing when the next peak is going to be coming or when that valley is going to occur, you know, it, We've learned this through 
kind of some of the environments that Brian and I have worked in that if you if you're thinking it as a crisis to crisis to crisis versus versus stepping forward and and seeing this as the normalization of your environment of the future how do you start getting ahead of it and how do you start seeing where the gaps are and where the breakdowns are and really start forward thinking about putting this as an opportunity to really begin to learn and teach and get ahead of the challenges that you already see that are coming in the future and i think that's where coming back to the mindset, kind of the attitude as you step into this, it's never seen as, oh, here we go again. It's like, oh, this is a great opportunity for me to learn how I perform under this type of pressure, under this type of dynamic environment with people may, may I, I normally may not work with, you know, and, and see how this can be pushed into a different set of perspectives of accelerated learning. And I think you know, the more you step in with that attitude, you know, the more you will be ahead of the curve on applying leadership traits and follower traits into an environment that is going to be normalized, um, you know, as, as pretty much the standard of, of where we're going to be working in it. And Brian really emphasized that earlier. I know, Brian, you have some unique thoughts there of, of how we think of it, you know, as, as getting ahead of, of of what's expected to be a crisis, which is really just a normalized environment. And that whole mindset of stepping in there starts you know, developing and creating both your actions and more, more or less your responsibility to the team and your organization, You know, again, back to that culture of being better every day. Yeah, Dan, the only thing I'd add you know, is that I do think we live in an era where every single industry is being radically disrupted by data. And that's a bit of a cliche to even say at this point. The, the organizations that I think will continue to thrive now and in the future are those that are getting ahead of understanding how do we use data to our advantage? How do we not fear it? Particularly when we're talking about biomarker data. Privacy is paramount. And we take that very seriously at Arena. But privacy should not preclude people from being smart about how to collect data on individual humans and their human system to allow those people to be better. And the fear-based approach makes people, makes organizations less intelligent because they're missing an opportunity to collect important data points that point to gaps in the system, gaps in training, or gaps in equipping people emotionally and mentally and physically for hard jobs. And so I, I believe very strongly that the organizations of the future in healthcare that are going to thrive, whether that's using us as a partner or not, are going to be the ones that have figured out how to smartly measure human systems to get ahead of burnout and not continue to stand up and say burnout's a crisis and not do anything about it. Because I, I increasingly believe there's an abdication of responsibility in leaders in healthcare who will say that burnout is a crisis, but will not be willing to do anything differently and how they train, equip, and measure stress in modern medicine. Yeah, and, and stepping forward into that and expecting there to be more waves of difficult things coming, whether it's COVID or not, and expecting things to get more challenging and more intense really creates this space where we have the option to either be reactive and get crushed by that. And I'm imagining myself surfing when I say that, as I often get crushed <laughs> by a wave of I'm out of position, or instead to paddle out into it and go for it and say, okay, well, I'm going to take a stance and try to ride this thing and see what happens with it. And whether that's what you're saying in terms of embracing the coming wave of information about biomarkers and, and performance and my own uh, metrics 
which also really involves me accepting the fact that I am imperfect and want to get better, right? Or it's what Jurgen saying, which is that, hey, if you think this is going to happen, if you think there's going to be a cyclic pattern to your life moving forward, great. How do you step up and make that how you perform best? How do you step up and really own that? And and I think that's an awesome challenge for all of us that, that I, you know, I look forward to continuing to move forward for that. And I think there's a lot of space to get better there. Um, I think one other thing too, adding on to Brian's comment about data, is you think about in every organization, what's what's the one thing that you could always do better? And it's always accelerated effective communications, right? Data is another form of communication this year that is so important, excuse me, in this, this generation, that is so important to start um, really embracing to the next level, because that's going to accelerate and catalyze and enable trust. And trust is the number one thing that's going to accelerate growth in your team, in your organization, and yourself. And part of that is going to be the application and integration of the data you're learning. Because again, that is the truly objective perspective on all the other subjective, um, quote unquote, data that's coming into you, whether it's someone reflecting, whether it's your own reflections, whatever the case may be. And really, that's the acceleration of growth that we're talking about here. Guys, I want to shift us slightly and ask you ask you sort of one uh, closing-ish question here, which is a very selfish question, to be honest, which is um, uh, some version of like, how can I do my job better? So if I turned around and gave you the keys to training ER doctors, which I, which I don't have and I can't give you, but let's pretend for a second I had, <laughs> and I could say, okay, you guys are now in charge of our training programs. Setting aside the, the knowledge in terms of how many milligrams of whatever to give, what would you do differently tomorrow? What would you shake up in, from what you've seen of our system and, and, and change the way that we train the next generation of doctors? Uh, I'll start off real quick, turn over to Brian. I think one of the biggest things here is this sense of empathy. And, and again, understanding the dynamics of this, this stage of development and growth. And I say that in the sense of empathy over the complexity of the environment, the frustrations, the conflicts, you know, the nuance that what we've all been talking about during this time frame. how do you really amplify that through your communication and the tools you use? Um, and I think that's one of the things that I think, you know, coaches are really good at, different than managers. And, and that sense of what Brian brought back, you know, of, of Dr. Brad Taylor, of how he thinks about his coach. And I know there's a lot of people out in this audience that, that really connect to that or are you know, phenomenal coaches applying those principles where you're looking at a human on the other end there and, you, and you're pulling out the nuances that a manager many times does not. Managers thinking about the end state and the execution and the coach is looking at the growth and the process of, of, of getting to a certain output, so to speak. And I think that nuance is, is kind of a... a a shift, I think, uh, at least from my short time in the observation of the environment that I've been privileged to look at across uh, the field of medicine. And I think really emphasizing that aspect, and again, it just comes back down to there, there's a human at the other end of the table, not just a performer, uh, is, is a different dynamic. And I think that's where coaches really, that coaching mindset really comes in differently. And, and that would be the first thing. The second thing would be really setting up a strong, architecture in dynamic environments. And I think, you know, understanding how you set up, um, you know, communication architecture, a learning architecture, all those 
architectures, you know, for leadership is so important in very, very dynamic environments uh, to really be effective in the future. Because sometimes, you know, we just assume that, hey, things will work itself out and we'll get there due to individual X or person Y. And I think, you know, that that's leaving too much to uh, on the table for that piece. I think Dan, um, I'm, I'm recalling an event Jürgen and I hosted, gosh, two or three years ago now um, on reimagining the future of medical training. And in the front end of that, uh, one of the chairs of robotic surgery got up and said, the hardest day of my career was my first day as, as an attending, not because I didn't have the technical tools I needed, but because I realized all the things that were going to make me successful, no one taught me. And that has always stuck with me because it validated our belief. And, and frankly, the reason that we've dedicated this chapter of our lives to this work is that I think the first thing I would do is to make equal, if not in some cases more important, the acquisition of human factors and performance skills. I don't say this uh, to be pandering, but I it's the reason that we are kindred spirits and have such great admiration for your work because mm. You are one of a very few group of people who are doing this in a well-respected marquee institution and building a program. And we have now been privileged to work in hospitals all over the country, some of the best hospitals in the world. I say that very humbly. And the frustration is always that people will say, this is amazing. We need more of it, but they're not doing it. And you are doing it. And so I, I think that is unequivocally the path ahead of, I've always believed the future world-class healthcare is not in technology policy or regulation. It's in building high-performing teams, which starts with equipping people and understanding the human factors. So that's one. Two is realizing that then upping the stakes and particularly in emergency medicine, training people for contingencies or things going wrong is actually easier than, it, than one thinks. And what I mean by that is I recognize the desire to invest in very high-end technology and mannequins and dolls, but you can make someone uncomfortable and force them to understand their own physiology and recall facts in a fairly analog, low-tech way. And so I think I would advocate more training of human factors in higher stress environments with less expensive technology. That would be two. And then the third would be a radical emphasis on leadership and training people from the start to understand that I don't care where you work as a physician, you are a leader. Because when you're in the room, people are looking to you. And I don't mean to suggest medicine doesn't expect that, but I don't see it trained as much. And again, this is just a cult byproduct of the military. From day one of the military, if you are an officer, you are expected to be studying leadership. And I think often in healthcare, someone is seen as a leader later in their career, even though in an emergency, if you're the doctor in the room, you in, in many ways are leading. And I think the reason that's so important in the context of human factors is the essence of a high performing team is a leader, not who understands herself and not who understands how to manage stress and pressure in a high stakes environment. That is expected if you're leading. A great leader is someone who recognizes in the people around her what needs to happen to keep those people calm and focused and performing at their best. So that's saying that's an even higher order skill that one has to start training well before you arrive at that title. Um, so that's, those are the three for me. Amazing guys. This is, this is absolutely phenomenal. And I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on and talking with me about this and for inspiring me to continue to push and do better in this. And, and, um, 
yeah, you know, I, I have a shift tomorrow and I can't wait to dig into this with my residence on shift and, and see what we come up with. As we close this out, I'm wondering if you guys have anything you want to do to issue a challenge to the folks listening to this, something you want them to take away with. And, and I mean, I don't even know where to start, right? We've done so many things in this podcast about like, about things to do differently tomorrow, but is there one thing that you want folks to take home and really, really adopt? Be nice to yourself. You know, it's very hard times besides the empathy you would display as a leader to your team and others kind of reflect back in towards yourself and be self-aware of how you do that to yourself uh, versus being, you know, very compartmentalized and really showing no weakness, you know, um, i.e. your professional avatar versus your authentic human aspects. Um, Yep. I would say I would challenge those, everyone listening who is a clinician to think back to the moment you decided to join this work and to pursue it. I find that in almost every case, there is a moment of inspiration. I call it the inspired soul where someone is just, you know, they're, they're, they're service oriented and they want to go serve the community by doing hard things in healthcare. And I ask you to recall that moment and think about who was it that you hoped to become as a clinician and now ask the question, are you that person? And if not, what's the work you can do to get there? Because that to Jurgen's point, it, for all of us, I don't care what field you're in, there's it's a learning journey. And so the beauty is that there's never been a better time to be alive. You can jump on a podcast here with Dan and listen to just experts from all over the world and learn. And so this, the tools are available. The question is, what work do you need to do with those tools to, to be who you want to be as a clinician? Awesome. Ryan, you're again, thank, thank you guys so much. Absolutely a pleasure. Uh, thanks for having us, Dan. Really humble. Yeah, thank you, Dan. All right, folks, that brings us to the end of this episode. I hope you learned something and I hope you enjoyed. As always on this podcast, our goal is to dive deep into what it takes to perform under pressure. Nothing that we discuss here should be construed as medical advice, and all of the opinions that we discuss are our own and are not necessarily representative of any organization with which we were affiliated or for whom we work. If you want to go even deeper and get more involved, don't forget to check out our book. It's called The Emergency Mind, Wiring Your Brain for Performance Under Pressure, and you can find it at emergencymind.com book. All right, good luck out there.